how can science inform us in terms of solving maybe the biggest challenge we've ever faced? Can we ensure the long-term sustainability of the planet? The system that we have evolved in the last 5,000 years, keep that this quality and standard of living and keep it in, uh, integrated with the natural environment in a way that we can all benefit and continue without the very system itself having built into it its own destruction. The very fact that much of this dynamic seems to be going on to varying degrees across the planet means that it's not specifically an American problem. You know, it's not Mr. Trump, and it's not people on the right wing here with all their the Tea Party and all their agendas and so on. It's something much deeper than that. That's why we have to address it in a much deeper way. That is why, going back to your question, <laughs> what would I do? It would be to really try to get people to understand that and so put serious resources into ways of addressing it. And the only you know, way I know about addressing it is a combination of political action, knowledge creation, and deep understanding and education. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. In my second conversation with Jeffrey West, we go from talking about the scientific observation and theory that he came up with and wrote about of the past, and we extrapolate into the future. This is something that he wanted to do. His book went in this direction, but he kept conservative, and you'll hear him say that he wanted to go in this direction, but he didn't really go that far. The thing is that nobody knows any better. Personally, I think this is the role of a scientist in our world situation where we have environmental crises and the scientists know things best. Now, are they the best leaders? I'm not so sure. Do they know a lot more than the average person does about what's going on and what we could do? Yeah, I think they fit the bill. So we talk about science and culture and the environment and the role of scientists within the culture today and scientists like Galileo and the, the legacy that they left for us. I think Jeffrey West listeners probably like listening to science and projections from it, not idle talk. So I'll leave you now to the conversation with Jeffrey West. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here again with Jeffrey West. Jeff, how are you doing? No, fine, thanks. It's great uh, for you to have me back, Joshua. I'm looking forward to it. Great. And I want to jump right into things. What I'd like to do this time is to begin where we ended last time. So you walked us through your research. Of course, we barely scratched the surface. I'm reading your book now, and I love it. So people reading it, it's engaging from the start. And I mean, I have a science background, but I said this before, and I'll say it again. You don't need a science background to get this stuff. It's very accessible. And he writes, you know, it's lively. And these graphs that he talked about last time are there and they're right next to each other. And you can see how closely these things fall in these lines. And you're like, this is amazing. So one, everyone should read it. But two, let's get, I, what I'd like to do is talk about your thoughts on applying what you've come up with, like what recommendations you have, also your feelings on it. And is that okay to talk about? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about it. But I do want to say right up front, this is obviously moving into a different kind of territory. Almost everything we talked about last time until near the very end was what I would consider a solid scientific basis. I'm talking as a scientist, and now you're asking me to take that and project and speculate into the future in terms of addressing uh, these multiple problems that we face. And obviously, as this work developed, and certainly as I was writing the book, this kind of question arose, obviously. You know, what is this leading to? And how can we address it? How can we mitigate the threats and so on? 
but I never came to any definitive conclusions. And in fact, I found myself, how should I say, inhibiting serious thought beyond having, I've had lots of conversations with many people that have either seen my work or read the book and whatever. So it's been there. And in fact, one of the reasons I think uh, I would be, um, I'm enthusiastic actually about having this kind of discussion is that it's, I'm gradually beginning to think that this is something I should think about more seriously and even write about more seriously. And it takes me into new territory simply because I'm a pretty conservative scientist in the sense that I don't, you know, obviously I like to speculate, otherwise you can't create. But I'm very reluctant to move into areas where I don't have the kind of training and expertise that I have when I, in terms of the things I wrote about in the book, for example, which covers a very broad territory, but it starts to impinge on many areas where I don't have expertise, you know, economics, social sciences, politics, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been very reluctant. On the other hand, <laughs> the many people that uh, one perceives as gurus in this also suffer from that. In fact, off the record, even though this is on the record, a lot of that is, is sort of bullshit in the sense that it is based on intuition and speculation. So as I said, I've been reluctant to engage in that, but I'm now going over that threshold and willing to do that. But that means this conversation will be a little bit ADD and non-linear. Uh-huh. That's totally fine. And I know that from a scientist's perspective, a lot of times if you speculate outside of what the data suggests in conventional science view is, well, that's not science or something like that. Right. And so I hope that anyone listening to this You're taking off the scientist hat and you're putting on just the regular human hat and you're offering a view that others don't have based on research and based on information, based on perspectives that others don't have. But it's distinctly relevant. And I hope that anyone listening, give a get out of jail free card that he's going to speculate as a citizen as opposed to as a scientist, I think. And I want to start with a general question I've been thinking a lot of, because I think that when I was practicing science, it was about getting data, it was about building the satellite, it was getting it into orbit, getting the data and analyzing it. And now that I'm I think when I look at the environment and I look at some issues that seem to be crises possibly looming, I mean, the data could be off, but it looks like there's some crises looming. And I think if scientists understand it more, simply taking data and publishing data, I think the role of a scientist is in a situation like this where they know more than others. And that simply publishing data, I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I think there's another role of a scientist. And the more I think about it, which is to actively do things and not just to say, look at this data, you should pass a law, but to take on leadership roles. Then looking back, you know, Galileo took on some pretty big social causes or, you know, he did some big things. And I don't think Rachel Carson was anything less of a scientist. I think she did some very important scientific things, as did, I mean, Linus Pauling or Albert Einstein. And so I think it's not like a crazy thing to think a scientist not just producing data and writing papers. Do you think the role of a scientist today is the same, different, or than ever before? Times today suggest that the role of a scientist should be different today. Has it always been the same? What do you think of the role of a scientist? Well, many things you brought up there, which are extremely important, I think. So first, before we get into that, I just wanted to, as I was say, correct, but maybe elaborate a little bit on what you're saying about that scientists, quote, just publishing their data and so on. I think the other, the, perhaps, especially in terms of the kind of issues we're facing, the other absolutely critical role of a scientist or of science, I should say, is to uh, create uh, theories and models and concepts and a framework for informing how to deal with various problems. And that could be, in the past, informing science informed us how to ultimately build an aeroplane or to build ships or to uh, create the internet and so on. And uh, now the question is, how can science inform us in terms of solving maybe the biggest challenge we've ever faced, and that is, can we ensure the long-term sustainability of the planet and the system with the people on that it. we have evolved in the last 5,000 years, keep that this quality and standard of living and keep it in, uh, integrated with the natural environment in a way that we can all benefit and continue without the very system itself having built into it its own destruction, so to speak. And to the last part of your question, I think the situation has changed. Of course, science has often been thought of as, in a certain sense, losing its innocence with the atomic bomb, where there was that huge dichotomy between 
you know, here we have a huge challenge, which is perceived as a major challenge, existential in the sense of the kind of system that we wanted a living, namely the threat of Nazi Germany of dominating the, the planet, and uh, the idea of galvanizing the power of science and some of the greatest scientists to uh, create a weapon that could uh, stop that from happening. And it had extraordinary consequences. It did in some way, it did play an important role in stopping it happening, but it had some very deleterious consequences in the sense that scientists was, you know, the question is, are scientists just the people that deliver the bomb and then leave it up to everybody else to decide what to do? That's kind of the black and white image. But even during the Manhattan Project, there were people, uh, scientists working on it who said, no, we need to play a role in that. We know more than anybody else the extraordinary destruction and consequences that this bomb, if actually used, would create. And instead of just willy-nilly dropping it on Nagasaki in Hiroshima, so to speak, unworn, we should give a demonstration to show the Japanese what the problem was. So scientists there were entering into a political discussion, and they were rejected. They were completely, essentially ignored, basically. And that has now led to much more self-reflection on the part of science. I mean, after all, the whole genomic revolution, which we're undertaking now, even, may I say, the whole internet revolution, which we're seeing played out in front of us, it's now out of the hands of the scientists and engineers that created it, and it's in the hands of uh, the entrepreneurs and uh, the co corporations and the individuals in this case, as well as governments, to decide what we're going to be doing with that. So now going back to the, <laughs> uh, the situation that we want to talk about, which is this question of sustainability and uh, the uh, our impact on the environment and so on and so forth. Again, you know, there's an enormous amount of science going on. Oh, sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but I have to interrupt for a second, not just looking at sustainability, but in particular, bring to bear the scaling that what you've discovered and what you've seen, because that perspective is new for almost everyone. Yeah, so in my own work, and, I, and the book was written with this in mind, was to present a really a totally integrated view of nature, to see that it's not all random and capricious and arbitrary that everything is actually interconnected and in a kind of coarse-grained way is obeying some extraordinary laws. And uh, we understand where those laws come from, why they arise, and they arise from dynamics and structure of the underlying networks. But uh, these laws operate not just in the biological world, but operate in our socioeconomic world, and uh, they have dire consequences if we take them, so to speak, to their logical conclusion. And those are that the system is simply not sustainable and that um, we will inevitably lead to collapse. And part of that is the dynamic that emerges to do with the increasing pace of life, that life is continually accelerating and it's becoming increasingly difficult for us not only to innovate fast enough to, so to speak, keep up with ourselves, but we can't keep up with the innovations because we're stuck with the same body and brain that we had 100,000 years ago. And maybe one of the truly true great miracles of human beings is that we have been, been able to keep up so far. I mean, it's, it's incredible. But we're all feeling it. And that anxiety is causing lots of problems. You said that the system leads to its own destruction. Now, to say that a system leads to a destruction doesn't mean that we have to stay within that system. Exactly. So that's the very question. The question is, how do we get out of this? Can we find a way of getting out of it? And when I wrote that book, when I wrote the book, I tried to explain all this. And my last chapter was entering exactly into this territory and trying to articulate why we're at a critical point and why it is that we have very little time left. And I then left the strands open. I did not try to address in that, the question of what would be the outcome if we don't do anything, even though it was implied. But more importantly to this conversation is, what could we do to intervene? Yeah. And we touched a little bit on that at the end of last time, because let me go back first of all. If we don't intervene, if we don't intervene in the sense that we change something fundamental about the system that we're engaged in, which is a reflection 
of our own evolutionary history, I believe, actually, which makes it quite daunting. But if we don't do something dramatic, then the system is, as I say, seems as if it cannot be sustained. And what that, I believe, will lead to, the first signs of that, will be increasing unraveling of the social fabric, meaning more and more disaffection, more and more demonstrations, and ultimately more and more Syrias and Sudans and so on. But I think that will be happening more and more in developed countries, as well as those that are highly developed. And that prediction is not based on you reading the newspaper and saying, I see what's happening in Syria, it's going to happen here. It's based on... Right. It's going to happen, in, yes, sort of indigenously to us. I see that. Because of the pace of change. Yeah. And I think some of the things we're seeing around the globe in societies that uh, where the standard of living is higher now than it was 50 or 75 years ago, yet people are unhappy and are frustrated and inequality is growing, etc. I think the politics that we see is the first signs of this unconscious realization of what's been happening, many people being left behind, but a lot of that driven by this accelerated pace of life that things are changing so fast and only a small number of people, relatively speaking, are able to adapt and benefit from that, whereas large numbers aren't, are becoming increasingly unable to adapt and are being left behind. And eventually, that pressure cooker is going to potentially explode. Is that a prediction of your research that the pace of change will improve things, but for a small class? Because well, it sounds like Marx, <laughs> but if it's coming from a totally different place, yes. then I would say, okay, it's coincidence. But I'm concerned that some people would say, oh, we've heard that before. Yeah, I'm not a Marxist, by the way, far from it. And in fact, one of the ironies, that's what I was trying to imply before, I believe in terms of certainly our history, I believe in capitalism, I believe in entrepreneurship. And I think what it, that it is though the combination of that and the, its derivative, which is wealth and idea creation, innovation in general, has been unbelievably successful. But built into that, this increasing pace of life and built into that is that that very system that creates wealth and ideas, creates a faster pace of life, built into that is its own destruction. How does faster mean that some people get it and some people don't? Some people get the benefits of it. I don't believe it's necessary that we have to have, well, first, inequality, I think, is inevitable. Mm -hmm. Some inequality is inevitable. It's very hard to imagine a system where some inequalities don't develop. Uh -huh. So it's a quantitative rather than a qualitative statement that when you have this runaway pace of life and when many people are simply unable to keep up with that, it's inevitable then. I, this is not science now. This is my intuition from the theory is that those that are able to adapt, which means those that got onto the IT bandwagon and the media bandwagon, for example, those people adapted extraordinarily well, but that left behind over 90% of the population. And the best that we could do, we being the other 90% maybe, is our adaptation was, of course, in mastering how to do iPhones and to use Google and uh, to presumably use Facebook and so on. But, you know, that's going to get more and more. And I just don't think people are going to be able to keep up with that. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's not I don't think. It's clear people aren't able to keep up with that. And I think we're already seeing some of the cracks appearing in that kind of stuff. And I think uh, it's not clear that we can move into whatever the next phase is. And this is the real question in a smooth way and have kind of a soft landing into whatever that next phase is, which we can discuss in a moment. So that's why I said at the beginning, I'm sort of, I don't consider this as a uh, necessary conclusion from the science I've been involved in, but it's highly suggestive. But what is also highly suggestive is that the way human beings in the past, when they felt things are, well, especially in our society now, stagnating. And by the way, a lot of this is to do with relative status, right? I mean, the American dream, which flourished in particular in the years following the war, so the post-war period especially, 
up until maybe the late 70s, was an extraordinary period of expansion, was a period where the suburbs and the middle class flourished. Wages continued to rise in a regular way so that when I entered the uh, workplace, even though I was just an academic, I just assumed I would get at least a 5% raise every year in perpetuity. And that implicit in that, the, the platitude that my children would be doing even better than I kind of image. And uh, then we stagnated. Then we've stagnated in terms of we meaning some 90% of us or whatever that number is. And uh, things have started to reverse a little bit. So the stagnation coupled with the top, we, people say 1%, but it may be even 10% who have managed to keep up on that. Uh, treadmill and benefit, but benefit extraordinarily from the uh, successes of the uh, last 30 years, that relative, that the relative condition of stagnation versus extraordinary growth is, I think, what the real problem is. It's not, in other words, it's not absolute. It's not an absolute scale because the absolute scale now of the middle class is probably higher than it was 50 years ago. So is it like saying, if I have 100 people in a room and each of them has $10, then there's 100 times 10, so there's $1,000. Right. If one of them has $900 and the remaining have a dollar each, whatever, whatever it is. Yes. then that is, for 99 people, that's the same as if everybody was really poor. Well, there's also another difference here, I think. There's another dimension to it, and that is, let's make it more than one person. A few people get most of that $1,000. I think part of the culture has been that if they did it fairly, you know, if they obeyed all the rules and they were extraordinarily clever and they did things that benefited somehow the rest of us, even though we weren't getting as much of that $1,000, if they did all that and we perceive it that way, I think uh, people can live with that. I think that the thing that also started to develop in the last 30 years, is that it was perceived that a significant part of those that got the biggest share of the pie were doing it in a way that wasn't obeying the rules or were benefiting from the ills of the rest of us. I mean, that was, you know, after all, people resent the fact that many bankers and investors and hedge fund people made a huge amount of money out of the collapse of 2008. And that does not go over well. So there's a feeling that they somehow cheated on the system. So I think there's a whole nother dimension to this, which is much harder to quantify, I think, because it involves judgment calls, whether people are behaving badly or criminally or outside the generic culture. That's much harder to quantify. And I think people do resent that. I think that is something then that causes incredible uh, social resentment. And in the past, at least, across the globe, has lent, led to um, things like riots and revolutions and so on. I mean, my God, America as an independent country came about from, I mean, it was a lot of things were happening, but the kind of the, the seed that erupt, made the thing erupt was the famous uh, tax on tea, right? I mean, that, that the British, <laughs> I'm, I'm British, but the British yeah. <laughs> were screwing the American colonials, who were British, of course, were screwing them by uh, you know, unfair taxing. And they were giving nothing back. They were taking the money, but not giving anything back. Mm -hmm. So I think the system, people I believe, and there's lots of research on this, are pretty good at living with inequality when they feel the system it's is fair. fair, people are not doing it unfairly, criminally, or covertly, and also giving back. And so people are, you know, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford, were not very nice people. But in American history, we respect them because the fantastic things they gave back. Libraries across the country from Carnegie, the Ford Foundation with all this great stuff. These people were extraordinary philanthropists. And so they're sort of forgiven in a certain sense, even though Carnegie did some terrible things to the workers. There's a very bad history to that. But people are, I think uh, there was this sense that not only were they trying to get rich, but they were also wanting to be good in a sense, maybe out of guilt. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But they were doing it. And I think there's a sense now that look what's going on now. Uh, this Manafort case with Trump's campaign manager 
who uh, it's hard to believe they could be so open about their criminal activity, but they weren't interested in giving back, as far as I can tell. They were only interested in gaining power. And uh, one feels that, many of us feel that about our president. So these are the things that happen partly as a result of things changing faster and faster, and it's more and more difficult for people to hang on. And you talked before about what could we do? And at first you thought changes would take an X amount of time. Now you see change happen in the opposite direction, but things happen quickly. You also said you don't see yourself as a leader. If you were a leader, what would you do? Or what would you recommend to someone who's taking a leadership role? If I were a leader, several things. First of all, in terms of this issue, I'm not going to, I mean, there's many other issues, of course, all of which are connected to this in terms of the big picture. So one of the things is, I suppose, well, I wouldn't say a leader, but if I were able to be someone that plays a central role in the allocation of resources and funding in order to make changes in society. So let me limit it slightly. Certainly one of the things is, this may sound very parochial and out of self-interest, but I would certainly promote much more science and technology and have government playing a lead role in that. And there are certain things that government can do in that sphere, which the free market system and industry can't do. Because one of the things, one of the bad, very bad things that has happened in the science and technological area in the last, again, 30 odd years, is that it used to be that the uh, many of the major corporations, and the most famous of which was Bell Labs, AT&T, was they had very uh, powerful and extraordinary research labs that not only were there for their own research and development, but allowed a great freedom in doing basic research with the understanding that ideas, you could never predict where some of the great technological changes are going to come from in terms of the new ideas that are being developed. But they do come. If you support basic science, it's inevitable that they do come. And that's been the history of the planet. You mentioned uh, Galileo. I mean, after all, he was supported to some extent because his ideas about thinking about motion were able to play into uh, military kinds of ideas for the shooting of cannonballs and so on. So you can make predictions as to where they're going to go and design cannons and machinery to that effect. I mean, that's maybe not a great thing, but in terms of the positive side of human nature, but important, very important. And has played a crucial role all the way through to the present, of course. So these ideas develop and they develop out of unpredictable basic research where it's uh, serendipitous. And the formula, to put in extremely simplistic terms, find the best people, most excellent people, those that have, are creative with ideas, bring them together, give them the resources, and good things will happen. Leave them alone. Good things will happen. Of course, you need oversight and so on but not quarterly reports, maybe. Yeah, so I want to give the illustration of Tim Berners-Lee working at the LHC. He's just doing physics work, and basically the foundation of the internet forms. Yes, isn't that amazing? And the, the return on investment on that is incalculable, but very high. <laughs> no, that's what's extraordinary. You would think that the fact that the internet came out of the search for the fundamental laws of physics, the fundamental particles, and all kinds of very arcane questions but out of that, in terms of doing the experiments to try to test the theories and do the discoveries and searching, out of that came the internet. And to scientists, this is like, of course, we know that this is going to happen. That is, you would think, you would think, therefore, the great leaders of the world will get together and say, you'll excuse me, fuck, we need to give these guys whatever they want. Now, just if they need a billion dollars for this, give it to them because who in the hell knows what will happen? You know, the same story is about the laser. Oh, yeah. The laser, they came out of doing atomic physics, was an extremely interesting effect, the coherence of light that you could have put extraordinary power into a beam of light, which was not appreciated until those experiments were done. And in fact, just in terms of my own personal history, when I was a student, I worked with Art Scheller, Arthur Scheller, who got the Nobel Prize as the co-discoverer, co-inventor of the laser. And Art Schauler one day said to me, when I said to him, Art, in a discussion, you know, this work is so interesting, but obviously it's going to have no influence anywhere other than, you know, it's sort of interesting thing and have no practical implications. 
And he said to me, you're completely wrong. This will have a revolutionary effect. And I said, you must be kidding. He said, no. He said, look, you know, we can, because we used to demonstrate to people that you could take the beam and bore a hole through a piece of wood, which then was really gee whiz. He said, you know, what's going to happen is we're going to make these powerful lasers and they're going to better do that with steel. So it's going to revolutionize the world because we're going to better cut steel to much greater accuracy. Which I actually do in my artwork. Yeah. I'll tell, talk about some other time. We have laser cut steel. I'm sure you do. And people do. But it didn't revolutionize the world. That's not revol- what did revolutionize the world, which he had no idea. He had no inkling. None of us had any inkling. That would form the basis for carrying out the internet, and everything we do. We could not be talking the way we are if we didn't have the laser and all the marvelous things that are incorporated in this machine I have in front of me. You know, it's unbelievable. So who would have predicted that? And that work, by the way, was done at Bell Labs. wasn't done... I have to also jump in with... Can I tell you my story about... I think it was Michael Faraday. where He was giving a demonstration of uh, how moving this thing... Do you know this one? He's like moving this thing through some induction and he's getting a needle to move. Yes, and he yes. shows it to some people and they say, well, okay, this is kind of nice that you can make things move at a distance and so forth, but of what purpose, of what use is it, right? This is electricity and magnetism. Right. And he says, I don't know the exact use, but I guarantee that within X amount of time, you will be taxing it. Yes. So the story, the version I heard was either Faraday or Maxwell. The one I heard was about Maxwell. So they're probably both apocryphal, but I think there is some truth in it. The one I heard was about James Clark Maxwell, who provided the unification of electricity and magnetism, Maxwell's equations, and in so doing, predicted electromagnetic waves, which is an even greater influence on our world than than the laser or the internet, actually. But he was taken to, when he was knighted, I guess, he was taken to see Queen Victoria. And Queen Victoria said, oh, Mr. Maxwell, I've heard such wonderful things about you and your wonderful work in electricity and magnetism. But tell me, what use could that be? And he said exactly what you said. He said, Madam, I've absolutely no idea what you said in my work would be. But one thing I can assure you is your ministers are going to tax it. <laughs> and, and, you know, what is amazing is if you, every time electric, Maxwell's equations were used or mentioned, from that time onward, you had to give a dollar, one dollar. It would amount to probably greater than the GDP of the entire planet by now. <laughs> because of its, its influence has been unbelievable. But no one, you know, again, so you would think that science, basic research would have enormous support. And we were doing this. And now when we're facing an existential threat. And going back to your question, what would I do if I had control over it? I would increase enormously the science budget, the education budget. We, but And one of the things that I would do in that uh, context is I would really try to craft a much more integrated vision of how we do science. Not that the, the present model has been extraordinarily successful, having individual disciplines, and we tend to put boxes around, uh, you know, physics and around chemistry. And then within physics, we put boxes around atomic physics and nuclear physics and condensed matter physics, blah, 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 is to start to foster a greater integration because the problems we have to face are systemic problems and big picture questions. And we don't address those very well. We need to bring not just academics together, not just in terms of the scientific framework or the academic framework, but to bring everybody into it. So sort of broaden this vision of what we mean by knowledge creation and research by even bringing in, or even, but really bringing in practitioners, politicians, artists, and so on, because we all need to play a role in addressing this enormous question of our long-term sustainability and the biggest concern to me is if I had this amount of money, if I could do this, my biggest concern would be I don't think there's enough time. We haven't left ourselves enough time to deal with these problems in order to understand what the dynamics is that's going on in general, in the big picture, but also to solve all the various individual problems that we have to face, which is the way we're doing it now, but to continue those in an even more vigorous way. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. 
Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Okay, so the first thing is increase funding to science. Then it's also bring in sort of like the systems perspective, which will bring in a population that comes in from different perspectives and to work together. Yes, so not just within academia, but broader than that. And if you actually finish my book, (laughs) if you do get that far, the last chapter talks about that. And I call for something whimsical, like there needs to be, we need to think in terms of a grand unified theory of sustainability. We need to think of it grand unified, meaning everything, not only all the various problems, seeing them as interrelated, but realizing that we need multiple multiple components of the kinds of people interacting in order to address these issues. So that's highly non-trivial, and it involves potentially institutional changes, of course. So I understand from what you're saying that even if we get all that, there's still not enough time. Well, that's my concern. So what comes next? Have you thought of what would change the time horizon? What would accelerate things? That's where at the end of the last uh, conversation last time, we sort of got into that when I went uh, off on some tangent about this whole question of we need, so pace of life is speeding up. One of the consequences of that is that we need to innovate faster and faster in terms of making paradigm shifts, major things that keep us ahead of the curve, so to speak. I said earlier, even with that, we have this huge issue that maybe we've reached the threshold where our brain, our biology, which is the same biology as it was 100,000 years ago, simply isn't able to adapt fast enough to the very things that we're creating. Don't know the answer to that. And I became very despondent because of that. But one of the things I began to realize, and only in the last year, was that uh, I, like many others, had started without thinking to identify innovation with technology. Innovation and technology had sort of become synonymous in our modern day language. When you say, what's the next innovation? You immediately think of, I don't know, driverless cars or some uh, personalized medicine, but something that's technological. And what I began to realize is there's, of course, this whole other side of innovation, which is, of course, cultural and social. And that what is obvious, and I'm certainly hardly unique in calling for this, is that maybe what we really need is a socio-cultural change, maybe even a political change. But we do need to think in those terms in order to address this question that of open-ended growth, that the open-ended growth is integral to this. And is it conceivable that we can change our social interactions, our social networks in such a way that we're not driven by always wanting more, always wanting more and always wanting something new. That seems to be part of what we have evolved into. Maybe it's always been there, but it's been most apparent since the Industrial Revolution. Again, when one thinks of social changes and cultural changes, one usually thinks of many, many decades for those things to happen. And we may have discussed last time very simple examples that have happened in our, our lifetime and that is the role of cigarettes and the role of seatbelts, both of which, when they were first proposed, that there shouldn't be smoking in buildings, for example, and we should all wear seatbelts. <laughs> I count myself among them. I poo-pooed. I thought it was nuts. You know, you know, no one will ever change. Of course, a few people will, and so forth. But in fact, it's remarkable that not only is the building I'm in, the Santa Fe Institute here, all of this is smoke-free, but we live on a 25-acre site which has lots of trees and so on. But you can't smoke anywhere on this. And no one's objecting. Everyone's happy with that. And everybody's happy with it. Nobody is saying, what are you doing? You're pressing us. This is uh, some mommy state solution, nanny state solution. Everyone's happy. No, yeah, it's extraordinary. In fact, there's only what you have to do to smoke. You have to go all the way down the driveway, out to the street, to the road. And uh, if you walk, it's a 10-minute walk. If you drive, it's a minute or two. And as far as I know, only one person does this, which is extraordinary. Whereas 50 years ago, I would be sitting here puffing on a cigarette and the room would be full of smoke anyway because there'd been people in here earlier smoking. That's amazing. And similarly with seatbelts. But that did take a number of years. And that's 
trivial, I mean, on the scale of the kind of change we're asking in terms of solving this issue. So I was not very confident that we could do this. In, I was confident that we could do it, but not confident that we could do it in the time frame of 10 years, say, or 20 years. Before the social fabric started unraveling things. But, and that's what we talked about last, last time, I got this loony idea that uh, good old Mr. Trump has given us an example of where it looks like maybe you can make a cultural change in one year. I don't know whether he's made a cultural change, but if it persists, if Trumpism persists, then he's made it. But that transition from believing in rational discourse and um, telling facts and not sort of making them up on the fly as suits you, and believing in science, believing in scientific discovery, and so on, and even being civil, I would say. All of these things that we thought were sort of ingrained in our culture, not that we didn't know that all these things existed, and in fact, exist in all of us. You know, I'm just as prone as the next person to have all kinds of horrible thoughts in my head, highly emotional moments. But you know, Part of the role of culture and part of the role of law and part of the role of being social creatures is that fabric is the thing that stops that erupting. And it's been unbelievably successful for a very long time. And when it does erupt, it tends to erupt in a highly collective way in terms of the things we were talking about, other revolutions and uh, violent revolutions and wars. But, you know, on a day-to-day basis, it's pretty much kept under control. And that's wonderful, and that we want to encourage that, and we have. And he sort of let the genie out of the bottle. And this thing popped out, and large numbers of people. So without going into the details of what he did, I think you're saying that the pace of change that he was able to demonstrate, that change on this scale could happen in a very short period of time, and that gave you hope. That's what seems to have happened. This happened in one year. Look, when he first ran for president, people thought it was a joke. And not only that, his contenders in the Republican Party, some of whom are very right-wing, were absolutely trashing him, you know, for these things. Now everybody goes along, 50% go along. So a huge transition took place. Whether it persists, I don't know. So what you were saying just before this was you were saying that you associate, or it's common to associate innovation with technology, but there's also cultural innovation, and cultural innovation can happen quickly. And I want to ask the question, what specific changes do you foresee would be effective? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but other than, again, sounds a bit uh, flaky, that the values, the sense of values that our society is built on, and I would say is predominantly what American society, I mean, the American Revolution, and the, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and so on, all those things that they're built on, that we actually live those, that people actually believe them. You know, the famous thing that in the Vietnam War and all the demonstrations and all the rest, and the, the country was also in a very divided state, there was a wonderful survey done where people would take, uh, uh, some would take around the Bill of Rights and show it to people and ask, what is this? And it was something like 70 to 80% said, it's a communist uh, doctrine. <laughs> Not recognize it. Because most people don't know what it is. They don't realize how phenomenal and revolution- truly revolutionary that Bill of Rights was. So we need to live that in some way. So it's, in other words, to the change, we need to move much more towards altruism, much more towards a more collective understanding of the problems, We need to move much more towards having a truly educated public. Somehow, I don't know how we do that with the the invasion of social media and so on, but this is what the other revolution, you know, the anti-Trump revolution would mean, that it's not actually revolutionary. It's returning or living the values that are typically embedded in, are embedded in our Constitution and Bill of Rights and in our multiple religions, whatever they are, almost all religions love thy neighbor as thyself kind of image. And those kinds of things, I think, are uh, we need to somehow have a leader, a charismatic leader, someone with the same kind of force of personality and charisma that, uh, and deep intuition that Donald Trump has, which is phenomenal, may I say. 
someone with those characteristics that can lead us in the other direction. And of course, one thinks of kind of Nelson Mandela, Jesus Christ, I don't know, uh, Buddha, the rest, Martin Luther King, etc., that have that kind of moral compulsion. And to understand, and that person to understand that the problems we face are somehow the moral equivalent of war. People are very easily galvanized. I mean, it's platitude, right? Very easily galvanized by war. You know, as people said, it would, well, the best thing that could happen to us is an invasion by Mars, right? <laughs> we, we all come together at last. So what we need to recognize is that the issues we face is the moral, equi- moral equivalent to war. I mean, we need to have that kind of um, sense of urgency. And a leader, it can only be done in some way by this kind of charismatic leader. In the same way, I mean, Trump certainly extraordinarily and brilliantly picked up on a malaise that had been developing over quite a period, long period of time, which, as I say, I associate with just this accelerating treadmill, actually. But he picked up on that and has exploited it in many ways, but gave vent to that frustration. And we need someone to counter that in a similar way, to recognize that all these multiple problems need to be addressed in a serious, rational way, and in a way where we do it communally, collectively, and in a way that promotes love and uh, respect rather than hate and disrespect, which is seems to be part of what's happening now across not just Mr. Trump, by the way, but across the country and across the globe. It's part of a What's happening? And and by the way, the ver- I said this earlier, but the very fact that much of this dynamic seems to be going on to varying degrees across the planet means that it's not specifically an American problem. You know, it's not Mr. Trump, and it's not people on the right wing here uh, with all their the Tea Party and all their agendas and so on. It's something much deeper than that, and so that's why we have to address it in a much deeper way. And that is why, going back to your question, <laughs> what would I do? It would be to really try to get people to understand that and so put serious resources into ways of addressing it. And the only you know, way I know about addressing it is a combination of political action and knowledge creation and deep understanding and uh, create an education. I'm afraid I'm being a little bit platitudinous. Well, we have to start somewhere. If you haven't voiced it before, the first time you say it, it's going to come up. But you have to start somewhere, exactly. You have to start with these big, big ideas. Yeah. If you don't say it, then it'll stay platitudinous and never refined. Well, that's the point. And I think what you're prodding me uh, with is, that one shouldn't refrain from saying these things and being outspoken about them. Well, I'm not saying should or shouldn't, but I think that sharing them will lead to reform. Well, no, as a scientist, because that's how you started the conversation, as a scientist, even though it's outside of science. Traditionally, yeah. Traditionally, yes. No, so that's the question. Should it now be part of the scientific agenda? Or, I mean, part of the agenda doesn't necessarily have to come from scientists. No, it shouldn't. It it should come from everybody. Because scientists are not particularly effective at motivating people. I think they're often the opposite. Okay. So, well, I got to share with you something. There's a a podcast episode I'd love for you to listen to. Most of my podcast episodes are talking to people. I'll send you the link after we finish. And the title is Technology Will Not Save Us and You Know It. And I think of, because I- Who is that? that What's that? With whom? That's just me. Oh, you. Oh, very good. Oh, very good. Yeah. And I'll send you the link. And I'm completely in agreement with that statement. The And You Know It is very interesting because- I think of the Watt steam engine as maybe the, the uh, archetype of the Industrial Revolution. Sure. And most people know it wasn't the first steam engine. It was the, a much more efficient steam engine. And so you think, oh, very efficient. That means use less coal. Well, each one used less coal, and then we got many more of them. Well, that's the point. Exactly. And so now we use more coal than ever. And what we have today is the exact, that is the result of that efficiency. And you say LED bulbs are much less, are much more efficient than incandescent bulbs. And we haven't crossed over yet, but soon we'll be using more energy lighting things that we never lit before. Exactly. And so if you think that technology will somehow got us created the situation that we're in, of course it created longevity and all sorts of other things, and it improved our lives in many ways, but it also created this situation. And so if you think that somehow now pursuing technological solutions will somehow not, will get us out of this, you know, Jevons paradox, I'm sure you know the name, that it's going to get us out of the cycle of 
temporarily more efficient, but then in long term using more. Oh, that's right. Then if you think it's going to be different now, then that means that you think something has to change from what was happening before. And if something has to change, it's not the technology that has to change. And I come to the same conclusion. It has to be our values have to change. If you have a system that produces an outcome, say plastic in the oceans, and you make that system more efficient, you'll produce that outcome more efficiently. Yes, of course. If you want a different outcome, you first have to change the goals, values of the system, then work on efficiency. Yes. No, I completely agree with you. You're putting it in a a different language, but it's pretty much what I have said and what my work actually led to was that realization. And when you said your work, that's got me so excited. Why you read this excitement, hopefully in in my voice right now. (laughs) But it also tells me that you've thought, since you've thought about things from a different perspective, that almost certainly means that you've come up with ideas that I haven't come up with, or you've come up with ideas in a different way than I have. And if time is up, maybe we can do another one. Well, we can continue again. Why don't you mull it over, send me your link, Uh and uh, maybe we'll talk again. I mean, I'm open. uh Yeah, I'd love to get to more specificity. With these hour-long conversations, people are, we're losing people left and right. But I think some, it could be amazing. Yeah, because I'm very, you know, I'm terror. I just go off on all kinds of tangents and I... That's this language of basic research. And this one is one where I haven't really thought it through. Well, because you can't, because they're just, you're speculating, as I said earlier, about the future and trying to draw inferences from the past. But it's, it is interesting because I have been thinking recently, I need to think about it more seriously and even write about it. And I might actually. All right. So I'll let you go. I don't want you to be late. I'll send you the link. I'll mull it over and I'll schedule next time. Please. Terrific. Talk to you again soon. Have a great weekend, Joshua. And thanks again for accommodating my time. Take good care. You too. And thank you very much. Bye. Bye. This second conversation that I had with Jeffrey led to a third, which will come up soon. I consider Jeffrey's views unique and valuable, and I love the dialogue. Speaking as someone trained as a scientist to another person trained as a scientist, it seems to me that we have to change the goals of our system. That doesn't mean stopping capitalism, as a lot of people knee-jerk kind of respond. On the contrary, when I look at capitalism, rules like bankruptcy and antitrust legislation, they fix inherent problems of, for example, debt turning into slavery. So we have bankruptcy to prevent that from happening. And markets tend to monopolies, so we have antitrust legislation to prevent that from happening. These we widely view as something that makes capitalism work more effectively and more fairly for people. It's a more level playing field. That's the way it seems to me. Markets also overproduce, and overproduction is a major problem today. We've accepted laws fixing other problems. Why not these? It seems clear to me that this makes sense. We also regulate accounting. We don't allow companies to lie about their finances. So what's wrong with accurate accounting not allowing companies to unload their costs on me because companies all over the place externalize their costs onto other people. Anyway, I'm getting away from just my conversation with Jeffrey. He was a bit light on what to do. Leadership isn't just about a vision, but how to implement it, not just we should do X, but how to motivate people to do it. So he wants to bring this team together. How exactly do we bring it together? What do we charge them with? Or do we just let them go? Because I think if we just let them go, I'm not sure if things will happen on the timescale that's important. I'm a fan of basic research. I'm a fan of science, education, I think they're very important, but I think we have enough science, education, and so forth to act now on the environment. We aren't acting. So I'd love to see the team he talked about form. I'm skeptical it will get to the results in time. But the big picture is, I think, his view from his scaling laws, I think it's very important. It shows the problems. It shows the need for leadership and cultural change. Anyway, we'll talk more about this in a third conversation coming up. you feel inspired to then act go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others value means better and worse and living by your values means living better by your values you may struggle at first but it's the hero's journey from living by others values to living by yours people say that little things add up i won't argue against it but what i find counts is acting Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.